0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the EBM Podcast. I'm Don Byrne, the producer, and you may be wondering what's happened to our regular Eddie Mayer-esque presenter, Duncan Jarvis. Well, he's currently sunning himself in Australia, lucky him, so I'm standing in. I'm joined by the usual suspects. If you could remind listeners of your credentials, Helen MacDonald first.
1: Yes, I'm Helen MacDonald, clinical editor at the BMJ.
2: And Carl. Hi, my name's Carl Hennigan. I am Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford and Editor-in-Chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. Thanks both. And listeners,
0: please keep contacting us with your comments via Twitter, Facebook and email. Um, Go to bmj.com slash podcasts and all the options to drop us a line will be there. So, the verdict. As we usually do, let's kick off with a verdict of the week. One thing to start, one thing to stop. Who wants to kick us off?
1: Well, actually, I wanted to just pause before we did it and say, it's quite difficult to work out what to start and stop, isn't it? And, and, and I wonder, you know, really, how do you go about it?
2: Um, it's not just difficult, it's nigh on impossible, isn't it? I think we're in a world where the overwhelming amount of evidence is considerable, isn't it? And, we, and we've been looking into this in the journal, because when we launched in 1995, there were 10,500 randomised trials published in that year. Fast forward 20 years later, they're now over 30,000. So it's three times as many.
1: How many is that per week?
2: Uh, Oh, gosh, you're doing my maths, aren't you there? It's about, what's that, 600 a week? That's a lot. You know, there was that article which uh, held a bastion in It was something like 75 trials, 20 systematic reviews. How will we ever keep up to date? And it's getting worse. If you said, let's forget the trials, we're just going to focus on systematic reviews. And I looked at this, I thought, put the filter into clinical queries on PubMed for systematic reviews. How many were published in 2017? 19,000 systematic reviews. So you end up with a problem that you can't just say, I'm going to look at trials, I'm going to look at systematic reviews. So what we've done now is we're trying to think about this as a problem. And think Who's about the it. we here? The we is the journal at BMJ Evidence-based Medicine. Okay. We're launching a new series called The Verdict. Mm-hmm. And we only want to tell you about research that actually makes a difference to practice. Something you can start or something you stop. And none of these articles that say more research needed. So there are two things we're doing. First is we think about two important questions. Does this research apply to the patients we see in practice? And second, does it actually make a difference? Does it come to a definitive conclusion which is also clinically significant?
1: So what do you mean by a definitive conclusion? Well,
2: a definitive conclusion means that it's statistically significant, mm-hmm. but also it's clinically significant. Sort
1: of meaningful.
2: It's meaningful. It's meaningful. And I think that's an important yeah. issue. The second, then, is how are we going to identify these papers? And we're working with John Brathy from Trip Database. What was that? TRIP database is a really interesting uh, database that you can go and search on for evidence. It's been around for 20 plus years now and it's a way of trying to find evidence whether it's systematic views, trials or guidelines. And it's a really neat search interface that we teach on our courses as one of the ways to try and find evidence that makes a difference
1: and that's better than pubmed or or google scholar or something else well i
2: think pubmed's very good when you have specific i want to find a trial or i want to find a systematic review but i find trips very useful it has things like a pico interface where you can put your patient your intervention and your outcome and it can say i'm looking for guidelines I'm looking for reviews. So and for we, a
1: clinical browser might, yeah, be, might be more Yeah, friendly. it's a
2: bit like a sort of Google for health, i call it. Mm-hmm. But in there, we've been saying, how do you identify the articles that matter? It's really difficult. And we have no solution. But here's what we're trying right now. We're looking at the top medical journals. We then use uh, Altmetrics to see if they provide, if Altmetrics is a way of filtering to the top, the stuff that actually is more definitive.
1: And what do altmetrics measure?
2: Altmetrics measure measure the sort of social media output of your research. It's things like your Twitter, your news, your blog, your Facebook, Mm -hmm. and all that goes into a score which pops up to the top. And generally above about a score of 100 means you've got a paper that people are talking about. Because if they're not talking about it, why matter? And then the third thing is we use existing... uh, infrastructure such as evidence alerts and NIHR signals, which are people who are trying to also make you aware of the evidence that matters. Mm -hmm. Bringing all that together leads us to a point where we identify some of the research that we hope that makes a difference to practice. So what have you found? Okay. Well, interestingly, uh, this week I picked out an article which uh, is about Placebo versus amoxicillin for non-severe fast-breathing pneumonia in Malawian children aged 2 to 59 months.
1: Sounds quite niche.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess it is niche. But actually, the reason this is important is nearly a million children die before the fifth birthday of pneumonia. So mm-hmm. as a global problem, this is a huge nice. issue. So one of the things in these low-resource settings is... You don't have access to diagnostic tests, mm-hmm. often don't have ac- access to imaging, mm-hmm. and you have to make a treat treatment decision that actually doesn't cost you a fortune. And what they did here was in non-severe fast-breathing pneumonia, so that means children who don't have danger signs such as hypoxemia, who don't have superior re- respiratory distress, they uh, assign them to amoxicillin twice a day for three days, compared to placebo.
1: Well, that seems very short.
2: Yeah, that's a bit that caught my eye and I was interested in because uh, as a GP, and you're a GP, generally we would prescribe, and I have to say this, and I'm going to give you some learning as we go around here because I'm <laughs> going to use it in my appraisal. I've learned some stuff here. Is Generally, you would go, here's amoxicillin three times a day for seven days. But the idea is the WHO has said, in a low-resource setting, use three days because that's cost-effective, and actually, you can treat people where you're not sure of the diagnosis. Well, actually, in primary care, we're never sure of the diagnosis. Mm. Now, what they found is, at day four, is that in the amoxicillin group, 4% of the, of the children failed, as opposed to 7% in the placebo what group. What do they mean by failed? So, failing for them was a deterioration by day three, which meant they had danger signs of hypoxemia, respiratory okay. rate went up by 10, or they had severe respiratory so distress. So, getting sicker. So, basically, you're getting sicker and generally you're going to be hospitalised. And they said, so the absolute effect is 3%, number needed to treat 33 But the interesting thing is, 93% of children do all right, irrespective. But actually, by the time they came to day 14, the differences were minimal. Because actually, by then, 10.1% had failed in the amoxicillin group and 11.8% in the, in the placebo group, and that was not significant by then. So the difference was only one to two children per 100 in the placebo group. And I guess that's a consequence of the shorter duration of treatment. Not everybody will do okay with only three days of treatment. And it's quite an interesting aspect that that made me think about these issues in terms of shorter durations of treatment. What does that mean? Having given seven days of treatment, I went and looked this up at NICE guidelines. I'm practicing according to NICE guidelines. And as it seems, I'm not. Because NICE guidelines says actually give five days of treatment in community-acquired pneumonia and says give information to the patient to assess them at three days. And if you're not getting better at three days, then you seek further medical input to see if you need a longer course or not quite interesting advice and so that led me on a further journey to look up systematic reviews and there are quite a number of systematic reviews Mm -hmm. that say you actually can use shorter duration course of treatments, and I think we could have a a, an explosion of some of the research here because I think this three-day course is quite interesting and I'm gonna start to use this nice guidance of five days for community acquired pneumonia with specific advice at three days, which was brought about by this trial, which led me on this journey to look at that evidence.
1: So is there any difference in adverse events?
2: Yeah, well, that's interesting. If you looked at the the, tri- the trial in children, it seemed that the placebo versus amoxicillin and the shorter duration, there was no difference in death. And in fact, when you look at the systematic review, is they show that shorter courses have fewer adverse events because we know that if you take antibiotics, you'll get diarrhoea, you will get all sorts of issues and I think understanding that the other question I'd really like an answer to mm-hmm. is does it reduce your resistance what impact does it have mm. an antibiotic resistance which if we thought it actually changed that this would be a really important issue to know about Yeah, no I mean it's interesting what we've done here mm. is took some evidence from an area where it's not specific mm. to primary care in the UK but the issues are very generic and what we've seen is we've used that to apply it to how we use that in primary care in community acquired pneumonia. Now the question is, Helen, have you got something relevant to practice today?
1: Well, I think I have, but it's very, very far from my sphere of clinical practice. So, <laughs> so we'll have to we'll have to have this judged by some radiologists. But um, earlier this year, the BMJ published a research paper on the International Variation in Radiation Doses for Computerised Tomography CT uh, Scans. And this was basically a study to determine what patient institutional and machine characteristics contribute to variation in radiation doses used for CT scanning. Doesn't sound very exciting, I grant you. So I'll tell you why this matters, or I'll tell you why the authors say this matter. Radiation doses from CT scans can vary substantially between patients and institutions and countries. And we know that radiation is a carcinogen and is linked to increased cancers. So it's important to reduce the amount of excessive uh, radiation that people receive.
2: So just to pick up on that point, I read a paper in New England Journal of Medicine, I think it was, and just that said... There's something like 60 million CT scans done in America on an annual basis. And that was a couple of years ago, so it's probably on the increase. And they reckon that contributed to about 1% to 1.5% of cancers based on the radiation dose. And I think what it comes to is the consequences of or the idea that when you order a test like CT, which is happening more often, you have to have a good reason to do it Mm. as opposed to just Mm. doing it for an asymptomatic Or just in case reason.
1: And what this paper is looking at is, so even if you target those CTs really well, if you you pick the right people who really do need a CT, the amount of radiation you get is quite variable and what they say in the introduction to the paper is that CT doses can be reduced by 50% or more without reducing the diagnostic accuracy of the scan Um, and that seems like a very worthwhile thing to do to reduce the harm that you might incur. And what this study found, shortcutting a lot of work here, was that mean effective doses and proportions of high-dose examinations used on the abdomen, chest, combinations of the chest and the abdomen, and CTs of the head, were... So
2: basically what you've said is that basically if you do a CT of the abdo, chest, or the head, you can halve your dose tomorrow. Well, that just seems like a no-brainer to me.
1: So what they're saying, they, they looked at how the mean effective dose and proportion of high doses varied across institutions and they find that the doses vary by 10 to 30 sort percent of so quite quite a bit
2: for the same indication in for the, the same, same type of pa- yeah. Patient.
1: yeah um and they say <laughs> i'm trying to put this in normal language you're the kind of person that writes this sort of... report. I would not language. write
2: this. I've looked at this paper. i tell you what it's doing. It's creating wonderful visuals in the world and people are forgetting the written word here. It's an interesting topic, but I agree it's quite difficult to yeah. read.
1: OK, I'll give you the top-line conclusion. OK, I- rate
2: for it. Should we have a drum roll at this point?
1: Yes. CT protocols and radiation doses vary greatly across countries and are primarily attributable to local choices in technical parameters, rather than patient, institutional or machine characteristics, which suggests that people writing protocols for CT scanning can do quite a lot to adjust the doses of radiation they're giving to people to make the diagnosis, but to minimise the harm from excessive radiation.
2: All right, I'm now going to translate that into... uh... (laughs) Into EBM speak. Basically, what that means is you should be using the lowest possible dose, and here they are, and get your doses down as much as you can, and you'll reduce the carcinogen risk to the population at large, which is an important issue, and you can do that pretty quickly and change your protocols. Now, I don't actually know if all of these radiation doses make a difference. Do you actually need more or less dose? That's way outside of my remit.
1: Well, I tell you what, I'll give a call to um, Amy Davis, who is a a friendly consultant radiologist who I know. Amy, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, I just wanted to ask you as a radiologist, is this something that's on radiologists' radars? Is it a live issue in the radiology community?
3: Yeah, it's definitely a popular topic of discussion and something that radiologists are always aware of um, we're always trying to reduce those to patients be it by not doing ct scans um, by doing the right kind of ct scan so you don't have to repeat it um, you're not imaging, doing too much imaging covering too much of the body all that kind of thing um, and there's lots of research in on ct doses um, in the uk and internationally um, so it's quite a popular topic amongst radiologists I mean, I'm just going to reference this, this paper that you've published because it, it, it covers all aspects, but one thing that this paper didn't mention, it didn't mention that we have national diagnostic reference levels in the UK um, and we all have to adhere to those standards and we get surveyed quite extensively and quite often. And there was a Public Health England paper in 2011 where they've done a massive survey of dose and the national diagnostic reference levels were updated only in October, uh, sorry, November last year. So I think that's why in the paper the UK doses and the European doses were actually quite low compared to other places. So um, we already have that, you know, we have to maintain our doses quite low to stay within the national levels. So from a UK radiologist's point of view, maintaining lower doses is more about streamlining your imaging service and making sure you do the right scan, you know, scan the right patient the right way at the right time, and not over-scanning and over-diagnosing and doing CT when you could do an ultrasound or you could do an MRI. There's always ways to reduce those, and we do low dose CTs for things like looking for kidney stones, because um, you don't need as much anatomical and um, information on those scans. So you can handle having them a bit noisier. We do low dose CT for myeloma patients. Um, I think MRI is the gold standard, but it's not available everywhere. So CT is the next best option. And because you're only really looking at the bones there, you don't need so much definition of the organs and the tissue. So you can do those at a lower dose. So there's always ways that we're improving our scanning techniques to have a lower dose for patient. I don't think the U.S. have national levels. I know there's been some talk about it and there's been some papers on it, but The way radiology is set up in the U.S. is very different. You have to have your accreditation in each state that you report to the radiologist, so it's not as joined up as, um, obviously, the NHS is the main body of imaging in the U.K., which is one big vessel. Um, In America, it's quite disparate, and I think it's quite hard when it's like that, and obviously, it's a private healthcare system, so there's money involved. It's quite hard to regulate then, I think, because each state has its own laws and will do different things. So I think that's probably why there's more variation in the US. I have to say, I don't know much about Israel or Japan and how they work. So I can't really comment on why they have, because they had the highest doses, didn't they? Higher than the UK and the US. And I would presume it's because they don't have national levels to adhere to. That would be my presumption.
1: There we go. That could be a start or a stop, couldn't it? Start reducing or stop Excessive doses. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
0: so has anything else uh, caught your eye in the news or anywhere else um, well, that there was, was linked to evidence-based stuff?
1: Yes. In fact, I wanted to mention something that I know that Carl's been working on for some time. And I wanted to mention this news story about add-on tests. For fertility. There was a news story which, which the, the BMJ covered this week. So the news is that the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists, the Royal College of Nursing and the British Fertility Society are calling for greater transparency about um, the evidence and costs for these add-on treatments. And, well, actually, Carl, I would just like to come to you and ask you what you think, because you know a lot about this. So you might have to just bring us briefly up to speed on it and talk about how this evidence has been used to change practice?
2: Well I think this is an interesting impact case. In 2016 we worked with the BMJ and with the BBC to do an investigation of UK facility centres and look at the amount of interventions they were using, what we call in addition to standard IVF treatment. And that's where you get this term add-ons. And it's a bit mm. confusing. And it would be helped if they just said, this is standard package and, every, and then there's everything else. And what we showed at the time is about 38 different additional treatments. Basically, the evidence for them was really poor.
1: What sort of things do they involve?
2: Well, you can have all sorts of weird things. You can have your endometrial scratching, so you can see you can have your endometrium scratched. They can use adherence compounds to make the embryos more sticky. They can do things like change the timing, called blastocyst culture, when they decide to put the eggs inside you. You can freeze your eggs, you can freeze your embryos, you can do all sorts of things that are in addition to just a standard package of IVF. And the costs can range considerably from a couple of hundred pounds to 8,000 pounds for freezing cycles.
1: And was there good evidence that they worked?
2: Well, you see, the, the issue is, of, across the board, there was hardly any evidence that any of them mm. worked. And when we did find some evidence that they worked, the evidence was really poor quality. Mm. And in fact, what we did find is sometimes you'd find evidence that they didn't work. So, for instance, pre-genetic screening was tried and looked at in a systematic view, and that actually reduces your chances of having a live birth. And what we were seeing is, oh, that was the old system, now there's pre-genetic screening version 2. And what's happened is, in this area of uncertainty, um, these clinics just were operating in a very emotive environment to say, here's a treatment that may help you. Well, in that area, you sort of buy into the emotion. Evidence goes out the window, and you're like... Let's buy it and let's pay for it. We published our evidence. There was lots of hoo haws about whether we classified the add-ons correctly or not. But actually, there was a major step forward in that the Human Fertilisation and Embryology Authority, HFEA, came out with a traffic light system. And their traffic light system was basically, which I quite like this system and we should adopt more often, was green-amber-red. Green was, there's evidence from more than one trial that mm-hmm. this will benefit you in terms of the outcome of interest. Red is there's no evidence or it's harmful mm-hmm. and you shouldn't use it. And amber is there's a bit of evidence, but there's still lots of uncertainty. Mm. And so they put this traffic light system out.
1: For you, for you so consumers. For what yeah, so level. it's on their website. Yeah.
2: And they said, here, if you look at this intervention, here's a traffic light and you can see it. And you can say, judge for you and then ask questions about it. And and I think that was a, a really big step forward. And so, for instance, they had things like assisted hatching, red. They had amber, uh, elective freezing of all your cycles of all your embryos or something called embryo glue or the endo- endometrial scratching that I mentioned. You're going to have a scratch on the endometrium. Mm. All of them were amber, but there were no greens, mm. which really surprising. And so what's happened in the news is they've come out with this statement saying, that base that there is currently no conclusive evidence that any of the add-ons increase the chance of a pregnancy or live birth and you shouldn't be charged for them and you should be in research and there are trials happening but that's a really important step forward and I think this traffic light system for the public and for patients would be really helpful actually.
1: Well the traffic light system I think is very appealing. It is isn't it? And, and I think it's appealing because it's, well everyone sees traffic lights, you all sort of have some intuitive understanding of what green amber and red mean and I guess you can debate where you draw the lines between those colours but um I think it seems like an enormous step forward
2: I think it's something about we have these areas in lots of other areas don't we now on packaging of food we're trying to make it simple yeah. with the colour systems um we try and do it in energy ratings have a colour system don't we so I actually quite like the idea of us uh, thinking that when you give somebody at least you're not saying you're saying there are at least evidence that can inform the decision. It's not saying it's good or bad. It's just saying there is sufficient evidence that can inform this. Whereas Amber and Red says, hey.
1: And I think that's very important for this population of uh, men and women as well. You've got people in quite a vulnerable situation who who may have limited um, financial resources, particularly if they're funding their, their IVF um, to make decisions with. So I think anything that can be done to make it easier for them to understand and to allow them to be clear and, and not upsold, really, is excellent.
2: That is the first time Helen MacDonald, I think, has said, something I've said is an excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, folks.
0: Okay, so we're on to the next section, the rant. Um,
1: Yes, I got angry last time, didn't I, for the first time ever. But I I think it's returned to Carl again this month.
0: You were genuinely ranting last time. I'll turn to Carl then this time. Um, Is there anything that's riled you in the past month?
2: Yeah, look, it's New Year resolution time. I've had a resolution to be less ranty in 2019. But there was a uh, this medical marketing. Look, this is a growing influence of medical marketing. I picked this up because it was a study by Lisa Schwartz and Steve Wallachin, who are uh, in My Hero Begrade and the late Lisa, Lisa Schwartz who was amazing and a great loss because of their communication skills and if you've ever seen them talk or if you want to have some amazing things go and read some of their stuff. It's been a huge influence on some of the stuff we do in particular communication to a wider audience has a huge impact on healthcare and they did this special report and I think it must be one of Lisa's last piece of work with Steve that looked at the increase in uh, marketing, medical marketing, from 1997 to 2016.
1: So, what is medical marketing?
2: Well, medical marketing is basically all the money that uh, the pharmaceutical industry spends on advertising, in journals, to healthcare that is seen as money that's seen to like advertising to influence decision making okay and what they showed is that there has been significant increases from 17.7 billion in in 1997 to 29.9 billion spent in the US and most of this marketing was to health professionals which accounted for 20.3 billion right now And the most rapid increase, and I think this is specific to America, was direct-to-consumer advertising, which increased from 2.1 to 9.6 billion pounds. Now, here's what makes me angry about this Mm. and frustrated about it. We know very clearly that actually this idea of spending money means you increase costs on high-cost prescription drugs. There is never any advertising of generics. It's always the high-cost drugs. And we also know this spending on health professionals is trying to get to key opinion leaders. And I looked at who this. are they? Well, key opinion leaders are people who are seen like could be yourself or could be me, who have a particular status as a researcher or as a, a, a healthcare leader or an editor, who influences other doctors, mm. and will be paid by industry who actually do talks or give write editorials or write position papers that are seen to influence. And an investigation in 2005 in the Wall Street Journal showed that if you get doctors who attend lectures from another doctor, they wrote an extra $624 worth of prescriptions for Vioxx over the next 12 months compared to those who didn't. If they just sent a salesperson to do that, and give the lecture, they only generated $166 of sales. So
1: in other words, doctors listen to other doctors.
2: Correct. And then industry... And, know and that. you
1: might not notice, you, you might not realise, I suppose, in fairness, as the receiver of the lecture, that the person in front of you has been paid by somebody with a particular financial interest. Yeah, and so there's
2: a sort of subliminal where we slightly declare our conflict of interest. But actually, it's highly prevalent, prevalent, Mm. this problem. And actually, it's not limited to just the US, because an analysis of pharmaceutical payments to UK doctors suggests it's not. Uh, drug companies made payments to of three hundred and forty million pound to UK doctors and other health professionals in twenty eleven, of which £111 hundred and eleven million was for consultancy, education, or and or conferences. And the big thing in America is, which is a step forward in transparency, is they have this Sunshine Act. So at least they have to disclose who's been paid what, and mm. that's going to be extended in twenty twenty two beyond doctors mm. to nurses advanced nurse practitioners and people who make decisions in their healthcare system so I think we're not going to stop advertising and consume it but there's a problem here we have to accept as doctors uh, we are not meeting the needs because somehow we can be influenced by medical marketing Uh, we don't see generics and the low-cost treatments marketed it's all the high cost. So we're allowing a system that says, carry on marketing, it's going to increase, it's on the increase, and it's going to have an influence in making sure costs go up and not necessarily at the same time healthcare people get better.
1: So in other words, for January, we could all make a resolution to really think about what we see and hear.
2: I think so, and I think that's a bit... It's, 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 it's You have to be optimistic but sceptical is my word constant for this. Constant vigilance. Constant vigilant, optimistic but sceptical. I think there's something really important about educating patients and the public about healthcare. But how are we doing it? So there has to be some marketing that's done from a perspective of this is just purely about healthcare and about lowering costs potentially. Here's how you can help us be realistic in medicine.
1: And I think this is quite interesting because the, the BMJ have um, a policy to increase transparency of um, particularly financial um, interests, which might be relevant to the topic the author's writing on. And in the education section, the the content we publish there, we're particularly picky and we get authors to fill in very detailed forms about organisations that have given them money and and what they've given them that money for and how how much money that is. Very personal questions. But often what, what I find is that a lot of authors find our interest in this or our level of interest in it quite unusual and they often can't perceive that there is a risk of bias that they have acquired themselves by being paid for their travel expenses to a conference or um, for some consultancy they did or for an opinion that they gave. I've never with. met
2: anybody who, who takes a payment or has a conflict and doesn't think it impacts on their decision-making. And I think it's endemic across health professionals. You have or you haven't? I haven't. You haven't? I've never met anybody who says, I think my I receive this money from industry and it really makes a difference and I'm conflicted because of it and therefore my decision-making is poor. It's the opposite. Most people go, well, I know I take this money. It has no, dis- no impact on my decisions or influences my mm. health and that's the sort of status quo. And as a, as a sort of tsunami, an epidemic, and a growing influence, it's almost become the norm now. Mm. And I think this idea, I mean, when this uh, ABPI database, half the doctors wouldn't even put their name to it. Now, are they too ashamed? What's the issues? So I do think we need a Sunshine Act, which says at least you can look at, potentially, if you're going to have an intervention or receive a treatment or an operation from Dr. MacDonald tomorrow, who's paying Dr. MacDonald? And I think these issues are important. And I'd be really interested to listen to uh, Steve Woolishan's points of view on what he considers are the solutions here. Or are they actually no solutions and we just have to live with these issues?
0: Thanks, guys. That's been a great uh, EBM roundup for this month. Um, that's it. Uh, the gloriously bronzed Duncan Jarvis will be back next time. <laughs> um, we'd be nothing without you, listeners, so please let us know what you think. Um, you can go to bmj.com podcasts, and that will tell you uh, how to get in touch. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, I'm Don Byrne. Thank you to our illustrious panel, Helen McDonald. Thank you. And Carl Hennigan. Thank you. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye.
1: Bye.